0: Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will fill me and enable me to preach your word faithfully, truthfully, and powerfully to my brothers and sisters here. Because we all know the Christmas story very well. But yet, let the familiarity of the story deepen our appreciation and love for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm gonna do things a little bit different. If you remember, last week, I spoke about the Christmas narrative from the position of Joseph in Matthew chapter one. This morning, I want to speak about the Christmas narrative from the position of Mary. And I'll do things a little bit different. I will tell you the main point of the sermon at the end. But what I want to show you, tell you, is the structure in which how I want to present this sermon today. That the passage before us has three important truths that I believe that teaches us about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and its significance to us. The first one is about not fantasy but history. Not fantasy but history. The second point is about not by merit but by grace not by merit but by grace and the last is not impossible but possible not impossible but possible if you were to I will tell you, i'll tell you in advance uh, i have no slides again so you have to listen and if you have your bibles please open your bibles to luke chapter one or on your electronic devices In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we see a very, um, I would say, rare uh, time that we see a letter or a gospel whereby the author explains his purpose of writing and who is his audience. And if you were to study the book of Acts and also some of Paul's epistles or letters, you would discover that the writer of this is a man called Luke. Luke who is a trained medical doctor and was a very close associate and co-worker of the apostle Paul. We, It is very, very likely that he's a Gentile, and based on his Greek writing, which is very polished, he is a very well-educated. And so we'll be very familiar with Greco-Roman culture and society. And the fact, because of his position and place, he was had the opportunity to write to someone of very high social status because of the way he addressed in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. We do not know who Theophilus is, but someone obviously very important that Luke found himself compelled to write this. Now, if you read Luke's gospel, you will find it a lot more familiar and, uh, to us because Luke is writing in a way that you and I, as modern people, would like to read things in chronological order. So he tells the reader, Theophilus, how he has prepared all these things and written it in an orderly fashion so that he may understand and have uncertainty of what he has been taught. So obviously this is a Christian. So having been given this task to write such an important document, well-researched, well-investigated in an orderly way, Does it not surprise you that for such an important and credible account of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will wish to convince this person of the certainty of his faith that off the bat in chapter 1, Luke would include visions and angels? Don't you think that if you are asked to write something today, and the first introduction of your thesis, your paper or your writing, or something to convince your, your audience that this is real and true, that you will begin with visions and angels. In fact, will it not discredit and cause your writing to be suspiciously not done well and true? You know, When I was doing my theological studies, I had to write research papers, and I must tell you, it's not a fun thing to do. And it was there for the first time I discovered the purpose of footnotes, how they will have, uh, one of the reasons they have footnotes is because they want to cite, this is where they gain the idea or thought, or this is where they read this uh, thing. So, there was once I was uh, looking at footnotes, and there was one particular footnote that really tickled me, okay? In, a, in the footnote itself, it wrote, instead of writing, you know, you would say, this particular uh, author, or, or, or commentary, or book, or article, or journal, the footnote says this, this was once revealed to me in a dream. That's it, you No, know? Wow, I didn't know you can go, you can do that way. If I could, I would have done this all my way for my research paper. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure who's the professor, but if I was the professor, I would fail the person. This is not considered a, a good footnote. So why would you think that Luke included this? Off the bat in chapter one, talking about angels and risk being discredited. Maybe even ridiculed, unless it was real. And that leads to our first point. The birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fantasy, but history. It is reality that happened in human history. Now, maybe you don't think about that very much or you don't struggle because we are so familiar with the Christmas story that we don't think twice about it. But if you were to actually read it afresh and you have to ask yourself, is this really true about angels, about visions, about dreams? Because in chapter 1, verse 26, we have the introduction of Gabriel. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, it is very interesting that Luke wrote the name Gabriel. Now, it's very unlikely that Luke had an interview with him, with Gabriel, and then did some of his research, but rather it was his eyewitness account from notably Mary herself. But why did he include this name Gabriel. Because the other angel encounters in the Christmas story, we don't see names. In fact, even the ones who spoke to Joseph. But why? Because this Gabriel is the very same Gabriel that also spoke to Zechariah. And it was he who revealed himself, revealed his name. Verse 19 of chapter one. And the angel said, uh, answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And so we will see that the same angel is the same, the angel that spoke to Zechariah and Mary is the same angel. But that is not that only. Do you know the name Gabriel, the angel, was also mentioned in another text? In a text that was written or an event that, was, that happened five to six hundred years ago in the book of Daniels. Daniel chapter eight, Daniel chapter nine. In Daniel chapter eight and nine, Gabriel was sent by God to help Daniel understand a vision in chapter 8, and in chapter 9, an answer to his prayer. Which Luke is telling us, this very angel that spoke to Zechariah and Mary is the very same angel that spoke six to five to six hundred years ago. Now, isn't this an incredulous th- thought that there are such things as angels? You see, why is this important? Because... If you want to believe in the Christmas story, the birth narrative of our Savior Jesus Christ, you must also believe in the existence of angels. Because part of the birth narrative of Jesus, not only is it supernatural, but not natural, but supernatural, God used angels as his messengers as part of the story itself. Angels are real. Anybody met an angel recently? Unless that's your pickup line, you know, when you see your girlfriend. But uh, never mind. Angels are not made up. It's very easy to put angels in the same bucket with things like fairies, hobbits, elves, orcs, dwarfs. But sometimes my wife reminds me that I'm like a dwarf. (laughs) Tough, hardy, and skilled. Why you laugh just now? You think, because I'm short, is it? Yeah, it's actually also I'm short also actually, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, do I exist? The existence of angels tells us that even though these are created beings like us, they belong to another world and realm. Take for a moment. Do you believe in that there is another world and realm that is beyond this physical world? Have you ever wondered why in a postmodern era like us today that people are still paying big bucks to watch and be entertained by fantasy and make beliefs like Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons. Now I mention these movies not because I approve of them, I'm just telling you that these are fantasies. Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, even the Marvel, not Marvel, Marvel series, which I've stopped watching because I'm just too tired of it really. And for me especially, Star Wars. But Star Wars, the first trilogy, the classic one, not the the other kind, okay? The one I don't believe. (laughs) You know that when you watch these movies and shows, even though we know for sure that they are not real, yet how come we are able to accept the storyline and be so drawn and engaged by it into the idea of, people meeting mythical creatures and beings, having supernatural powers, how in the movie, in the show, that we want the good to overcome the evil, and how we cannot accept that death is the final chapter of the story, the final end. There must must exist something called eternal. And why we always want our hero and heroine to win at the end of the day, and even perform an act of sacrifice to save the lives of others that they love. Have you ever asked yourself why these things draw us so much? And these are not just sentiments of non-religious people or people who deny the existence of God. These are sentiments, or rather, these are sentiments of people who are also, who don't believe in God, not just only for us religious people, that somehow want to feel deeply connected to this other world, other fantasy. You know, if you are like a Star Wars fan like me, I'm sure you have done this before. Okay? I was in a toilet, and I wanted to reach for something, and I couldn't reach, so I used the force. I replayed Luke or rather, Kenneth use the force, trust me. And I was praying, Lord, just move a little bit, I'll be so happy really, right? I have the force. Nobody to do it, okay, now only me, okay, now mine. But why? Because we want to believe, we want to. Why do you think people dress up? No, Comic-Con begins today, if I'm not wrong, right? Anybody going? Maybe some of you not here because you are there. They dress up in the fantasy with all these things, wanting to be their hero, anti-hero, the villains, Mm -hmm. and they have all these costumes and uh, all these items. Why? Because we want to believe in that. We believe in that that we want to play in this fantasy. J.R.R. Tolkien, who was the one who wrote the famous Lord of the Rings, said in his essay called On Fairy Stories, that the reason why we are so drawn to fantasy and fairy tales It's because all these stories, and I would include all these things that we've been watching, are actually in many ways pointing us to a true story, a true reality, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it connects with us. That is why the inner part in us feels that the plausibility, even though we know it is not real, there is a plausibility. That there is another world where creatures and beings come from, from another realm, where there are powers beyond what we know of today, where the eternal exists, where the good will finally triumph over evil. And there is a hero, who ultimately sacrifices himself because of love, to save those whom he loves? That's why it deeply resonates in all of us. C.S. Lewis, a very good friend of G.R.R. Tolkien said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. That is why this Christmas story is an opportunity for us to remember that it's not fantasy, it's not make-believe, not legend or myth, it is really real. You know, in in a place like Singapore whereby being affluent, there are many things that are very accessible to us in terms of material goods, even experiences. And yet, we are willing to pay for all these things because we want these things. And there's nothing wrong in that. But have you ever wondered how come, despite all these experiences and all these material gifts and goods, we still feel discontent? We still feel unsatisfied. And yet, somehow, the world of make-believe draws us If all that we have and needed in this world is really here, then we wouldn't look beyond this world. But the Christmas story is telling us that there is another world where angels exist and where one person comes from heaven onto earth. And so to believe in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe in angels the supernatural, to believe in another world that we are meant to be a part of, that you and I are meant to be, that the way, that the life that we live today, though limited, is not all that it is, that we are meant for a greater world and realm that awaits us, and we should be excited about this. And I hope that this Christmas story, as you read it once again, will rejuvenate in you the hope that doesn't belong in this world, but beyond in this world. That we are to believe in the divine, and that to know that Jesus is not from this world. He came from another world. But the question is, how do you and I access to this world that is not part, this realm that is not a part of this world of ours? And this leads to the next point, not by merit, but by grace. One of the ways to understand the birth narrative of the Gospel of Luke is to do a comparison of the differences that the author Luke writes about Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. And he intentionally did that. And there are a number of things we can observe. Turn to your Bible in Luke chapter 1, verses 5, we begin. Look at how he introduces Zechariah. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. So we know he's a priest his name is zechariah division of abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of aaron and her name was elizabeth so we know that even the wife is also part from a priestly line too and we also note in verse 6 that they both were righteous righteous in character and before god and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the lord so within these Five, uh, two verses, we know a great deal about them. Everything about them, wonderfully. But now contrast with Mary, okay? Look at verses 27. Or rather, maybe I, I will begin 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Do you know know, thus far we still don't know nothing about Mary? Except that she's a virgin and she lives in Galilee. That's it. And then the last line. And the virgin's name was Mary. Can you see the stark contrast in quick? introduction, um, uh, Zechariah was really introduced. And then later on, even Elizabeth's name was introduced. And then they're corrected and all that. But we know nothing of Mary. The only thing we know that she lives in a place called Nazareth, which is absolutely obscure and unknown uh, city itself. She is a virgin, a young girl, also unknown about her and anything about her background. We only know, we know more of her husband, Joseph, that he's from the house of David. And... Her name is Mary, that's it, last part. Nothing remarkable about her, nothing special. And yet, look at what the angel spoke to her, that how she is a woman of grace. Verse 28, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. The key root word of ideal, of, the, uh, of the word, oh, favoured one, and you have found favour, is actually the word grace. And that's what the author intended. How Mary found grace in the eyes of God. Do you know what's the point here? Before I say the point, to explain what grace is, grace basically means that in its simplest definition is unmerited favour, meaning to say that you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it, but it was given to you. That you did nothing to receive the blessings and favour from God, which is, which is about Mary. She did nothing to deserve it. And it is an unfamiliar concept to us because, in, uh, because we hardly use it in our culture and society. In fact, I would say grace is counterculture, counter to our cultural values and societal values. I may even dare to push it to say that grace is the enemy of merit. As, I, um, as a pastor from America called Harry Ironside says this, grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favour, but it is favour shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. You see, in our society, what we celebrate is meritocracy. Wonderfully, is that we are not judged by our race, skin color, even family background, and even what we believe in. But we are fiercely, fiercely judged by our merits, what we have achieved and what we have done to prove ourselves. So when was the last time you received grace from someone, or I would add something. I mentioned before, but you know, because grace is so remote and experience that the last time that I received grace was when I entered into a car park where I had a grace period of 10 minutes, <laughs> right? And then I quickly rush and do everything I need to do within 10 minutes, then come out. Then when I don't make it in time, I get very upset that the grace period ended. That's not really gracious at all, right? How about you? Well, maybe I might jog your memory for those of us who are uh, in ARPC, that we actually did experience grace a couple of months ago. We had an event called Let's Carnival. Do you remember? For those who are not familiar, Let's Carnival is something that we, uh, at the church puts up in Kochuan uh, Presbyterian Secondary School in Bishan as part of our National Day Celebration and the President Challenge. And do you remember how grace was... I, do you know why I say grace was demonstrated and expressed? Because it was so easy to win the prizes. That even if you never got to win, they still give you the prize. And I know that because I was there. And the children had so much fun. You know, sometimes it can be very sad and quite stressful when you bring your kid to go to a carnival, and daddy, I want this, daddy, I want that. You know, daddy, I want to win a prize, or mommy. And you fail to do that, and that's where they make you spend money there. Well, this carnival, you don't have to worry. You get, even you miss everything, you still get gifts because our DG members bought many gifts for them. That's grace. But our society is very different. Everything is about earning and doing our very part and receiving due credit. We work hard so that we may deserve our increase in pay in our bonus and even promotion. Hardly anyone will tell the boss that, you know, boss, you're so nice. You know why I say you're so nice? Because I know I don't deserve my salary. No, I know I'm not good enough. I've been lazing around so much and I don't do do enough work, yet you still pay me. Nobody talks like that, right? Nobody. In fact, if you do that, what will happen is that soon you will have an appointment with the HR uh, department, have a review of your performance and your KPI and maybe have a reduced salary and no bonus. But when you look in the Gospel of Luke, this passage here, and you see grace, you know what it's telling us? It is telling us that Mary is not special. Mary is not extraordinary. In fact, it is the direct opposite. Mary is poor. She's unknown. She's ordinary and common. The only thing that distinguishes her in that way is that she's a virgin. But even that, that is not so particularly special in those days. In fact, in the, in, the, in the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it is a make-up legend or myth, nobody would think of bringing up a plain and ordinary, unknown person like Mary to be the mother of Jesus because it makes no sense. But yet, we know it is to be true. But because, because she is unknown, she is so ordinary, she has done nothing unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth who walked before the wishes, she has not, nothing mentioned about her. Because of that, she is the best candidate and recipient of the grace of God. Let me repeat that again. Because she is so normal, so ordinary, she is the best candidate and recipient of the grace of God and to be included in God's great plan of salvation of the world. You see, God is using her as an example, in fact, the very first person to know and to receive Jesus, that you don't have to be anyone special, do anything extraordinary or remarkable or outstanding to receive Jesus. But it begs the question, why Mary can't earn this favour and be chosen by God? Why? Why? Because the truth is there is absolutely nothing that you and I, and even Mary included, could do to earn God's favour. In fact, to entertain this idea that we can earn God's favour would fall into three faulty ideas. Let me mention quickly, briefly. It will mean that we have this faulty idea that we are good enough to earn God's favour. That we are good enough. Secondly, we believe that God's standard is far lower than it is that is why we can achieve it we falsely believe in that and the last one is we don't need god i can do it myself so if we can't attain this if we can't gain this eternal and infinite and valuable person called jesus christ how are we to do so Because of grace, it cannot be earned. It has to be given. You know, I've come across a website that was quite funny. It's called Spend Elon Musk Money. Have you come across that? It's quite funny, you know. The website I checked is is a website. Then they put the value of Elon Musk, $240 billion. And then they have a basket of items that you can click, click, click to see what you want to buy. From something as cheap as a coffee to something like a yacht, Hotel, hospitals, uh, even for, uh, teams in hundreds of million dollars and billion dollars. So I was playing with it. You know what? It's so ridiculous, so ridiculous that despite buying a thousand planes, hundred over yachts, castles, buildings, he's still a billionaire, you know. It, it's so hard to finish spending 240 billion dollars. So imagine me, you know, and I mean, just follow me this. A cheeky idea. Let's say someone wants to give you something very, very expensive. Let's say in Singapore, someone is a billionaire, wants to give you a GCB. Want a GCB, not good class bungalow. Wow, I can only see it. I never entered one before. Okay, if you, if you have one, let me come in, okay? Never mind, just joking. Okay, it costs a hundred over million dollars. What could you ever say or do to say that you deserve it? I, I will earn it. I, I will work hard for it. I calculated, you know, even if you earn a six-figure salary, you can never earn it. I mean, of course, it sounds ridiculous, which is the point of the illustration. For something as physical as this, we can't earn it. Why do you think we could ever earn a gift like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God? The funny thing about things that are very precious to you, they are very important to you, is that the moment you are able to put a price on it, it automatically cheapens and devalues the thing. What do I mean? So, my wife and my sons are very precious to me. But let's say someone proposed this, that they would like to buy them and ask for a number, any number, no limit. What should I say? You know, because they're my wife and my children, you know, I think they deserve a very high amount. Let's say I say 100 million, maybe a billion dollars. Do you know what will happen? Immediately, when I'm able to quantify an amount, it will show that there is a fixed monetary value that I will be willing to sell my family. And even though it can be as high as 100, if a $1 billion dollars, it still cheapens and devalues that relationship. Yet, today, nobody will consider doing that. I would rather die than to sell my family to anyone. And so let's look at the child that Mary is going to bear. At this point of time, she doesn't know what it is. Look at chapter 1, verse 31. There are eight things that that the angel Gabriel tells Mary about this child. One, you will conceive in your womb a son. And you will call his name Jesus, which tells us something, which his name means he saves. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. Not only that, continue down to verse 35. The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. let me ask you this question. What could Mary have done to contribute to this child? Nothing. Exactly. Nothing. There is nothing that Mary could contribute to the gift of this child. And the Lord knows. So now do you know why? That why God cannot accept your good works and merits. Do you know why? Because if he can accept your good works and merits, it will automatically devalue and cheapen his love and his relationship to his son Jesus Christ. To think that your works and however much you sacrifice to, to the Lord is of equal weight and worth to his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he he cannot. He cannot accept. Yet, the most amazing and beautiful thing, that the eternal, the infinite, and the invaluable baby Jesus is still obtainable to us, but only if it is given as a gift Only as a gift. You see, for this to happen, is that the son of the most high that we read in verse 32 and 34 has to become the most low. A baby in human flesh. That is why Christianity is not about receiving, and it's not about it's not about earning, but about receiving. It is not about what can you do for God, but what God has done for you. It's not about you doing something because God knows that you cannot do the impossible, but God will now do for you. That's why the Christmas story is to remind us all over again. It is about receiving a gift, and the gift that's something that you and I can never earn which leads to the third point, not impossible, but possible. Now, have you heard of the argument that if God can do the impossible, if he's so omnipotent, so he can create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? So they would argue in that way. And they say that if God can create such a rock that he can't lift, means that he's not really a God or omnipotent. Or if he cannot create such a rock then he is also not God or omnipotent. And sometimes it is easy to think that they have got us cornered because we believe in a God who can do anything and who is omnipotent. But the truth is they have not. You see, because these arguments have many false assumptions. For example, because God who is omnipotent here and the text here states very clearly in verse 35, for nothing will be impossible with God that he can do the impossibility, it doesn't mean that God can do anything. And I'll give, you, I'll give you a few things that God cannot do. Actually, many things. One, God cannot sin. So does it diminish his value as God or his omnipotency? God cannot tempt and do evil. God cannot deny himself. God cannot do anything that is out of his own character and being. Does it sound like God has diminished his own being or his omnipotency? No. Or God can't create a square circle or a round triangle because these are all illogical. The impossibility of God is the, Im- the impossibility that God can do is the impossibility that you and I can't do. And in, in fact, these arguments also have to be logical and based on truth. Like, have you heard of someone say that there's no such thing as truth, right? Have you ever asked, is that true? Because it's a self-defeating statement. For it to be true, then there must be truth. These statements contradict themselves. The same is for the Lord himself. God is of the Im- can do the impossible because God is not limited by time, space, and matter unlike us. And if you remember in Genesis 1 how God could create everything out of nothing, how difficult do you think it is for God to create life out of nothing? Or to create life in a womb that doesn't require a man? Now, if you look at the birth comparison, you would realize that how um, Mary herself. Was also wondering this question: How can she be pregnant because she is a virgin? She has not known a man. And so the angel Gabriel gives us the answer in verses um, 30 down after her question, that this will be the work of the Holy Spirit. This will be from the power of the Most High, and that she will be, she and the child that will be to conceive will be holy. And now holy is no longer just a thought or concept, but a person. And the child will become the Son of God. Verse 35. Now, to help her comprehend this and to be able to understand this, because this has never have been done before, the angel Gabriel directed her attention to Elizabeth. Verse 36 And behold, your, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is a six month with her who is called Baron. Now, this was also an impossibility, but, not has, but, ha, but has been done before. Because this is something very similar to in Genesis chapter 17, whereby Sarah was also barren, 90 years old. And yet she was able to conceive with Abraham to have a son called Isaac. This has happened before. But now God will do something that has never ever happened before. Creating a child in the womb of a girl without a man. The impossible has become possible. And so if God can do this miracle of creating life in a barren womb, he can also create life in a womb that doesn't require another man. And so what happened is that we saw Mary herself when she went to visit Elizabeth to investigate and she realized the truth that that is true, that Elizabeth, Elizabeth is truly pregnant. In verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and she knew that Elizabeth was pregnant. But at the same time, we also know that at that point, Mary was also pregnant. In verses 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She was a mother already. She was already pregnant. God has done the impossible. A virgin has conceived without a man, but by the power of the Most High. Now, let me draw this to a conclusion of the Christmas story from the narrative of, from the position of Mary. What does it mean for us? That if you and I truly understand and believe in what we just read in the Gospel of Luke about the foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ, that this is not fantasy, but a reality in history that this is not about our merits, but about the grace of God bestowing upon us, that this virgin birth is not impossible, but God made it possible, then how shall we respond? The main point of this sermon is this. To receive the gift of Jesus Christ, to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, You have to confess and admit that you and I are nothing and undeserving of this infinite, eternal, invaluable gift. And the only way to receive it is by grace of God. And if you truly have this gift of Jesus in your life, then the way you live your life will profoundly be so different From all other lives who do not have this gift. You know what will happen? You will grow in humility. You will grow in service towards others. You would also grow in worship and praise of the Lord. Now why do I say that? Because look at Mary. Look at her humility. Because she was humble, she dared to ask questions. She had faith but she had humility to ask question. How will this be, verse 34, since I'm a virgin? She asked. And when even she didn't fully comprehend all the significance of what angel Gabriel said, because we don't see her response here, she still submitted and humbled herself to the Lord. Mary said in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then we have no response. No, no response in the emotion and in, in, in how she reacted. But she submitted herself. But yet, it also moved on to service, that she was prepared to serve the Lord, whatever the cost, because she called herself a bond servant. And the last thing that we saw, when she finally understood the significance of it, she went into a worship called the the Magnificat of Mary, verses 46 all the way to 55. She worshipped and praised God. Why is she able to be so humble that she thought nothing of herself? Why she was able to put herself at service to God and to others and to carry this cost and possible shame of this early pregnancy and still be able to worship God with such adulation? is because she had the gift of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what we have read from the Gospel of Luke. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters here and those who are here maybe for the first time, that they will see that the Christmas story is true and real and how it is about a gift that you want to give us and how that you have done something that no one could have ever done in giving us your son, Jesus, to be born as a baby, to be with us. And we can have this if we believe. And so I pray for all of us, both young and old, and those who are mature in faith and new in faith, and knew that they will examine their hearts, whether they have the gift of Jesus Christ in their life this Christmas is in whose name we pray amen